Welcome to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, the fiercely nonpartisan discussion that seeks policy solutions to issues of the day. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. Welcome to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, and today we have an exceptional guest with us. We have former Detroit, Michigan Police Chief James Craig. Chief Craig will talk to us today about policing, about leadership, and some of the lessons that he's learned during an extraordinary life and a terrific career. Chief, welcome to the Common Bridge. So happy you're with us. Thank you, Rich. Glad to be here. The Common Bridge, of course, is available on most podcast outlets on YouTube TV, Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, as well as register free at richardhelpy.com. Now, Chief, I understand you grew up on the west side of Detroit, the northwest side, native Detroiter, graduate of Cast Tech High School. What were some of your early days like? What was your experiences with your family and growing up in the city of Detroit? Well, grew up, as you indicated, northwest Detroit, attended Cast Tech High School, participated in track and field. Uh, my event was the 440. I had a lot of love for it. I guess I really wanted to play football. I just wasn't big enough, but I was fast enough. But that said, uh, I majored in automotive technology. It was my hope and I guess a, a kind of a dream to build race cars, be involved in automobiles. And so after graduation, I began coursework in mechanical engineering while I worked at Chrysler Corporation in the evenings. But at some point, I made a sharp right turn and decided I wanted to be a Detroit police officer. And this was at 19 years old. I didn't know why, but I guess when I look back, my dad, who served in the U.S. Army, he was a military police officer. Years later, during the civil unrest here in Detroit, he served as a reserve officer for the Detroit Police Department assigned to the 10th precinct. And mm. some of your viewers may know that that was the area of the city where the 1967 riots erupted. Yes, and so indeed. I was 11 years old then and probably didn't want to have anything to do with policing uh, because of what I saw, tanks going down streets, snipers. But my dad served as a reserve officer. But then nine years later, I found myself as a Detroit police officer, ironically assigned to the 10th precinct. Stayed for two and a half years. Then Mayor Coleman Young had really accelerated recruitment and hiring. In the late 70s, he was focused on creating a department that reflected the demographic of the city of Detroit. I was part of that. But then in 1980, immediately following the Republican National Convention, uh, there was a big layoff. The mayor laid off 1,500 Detroit police officers. So it was at that point I had to make a decision. Do I stay and wait it out? Toledo, Ohio was hiring police officers, but I felt like you know, going to Toledo was like staying in Detroit. Then I found out that uh, Los Angeles, the LAPD, was hiring police officers and they were real interested in hiring laid off Detroit police officers. So I went to a city I'd never gone to and ended up joining the LAPD and stayed with that department for 28 years. I learned a lot. Certainly my view of policing was very different. Uh, 28 years of experience. Certainly that experience was very helpful when I look back at where I've landed as chief now in three cities. So just to fill my readers in and my, excuse my listeners and viewers in a little bit, in 1973, Coleman Young won a closely contested race against John Nichols, the police commissioner at that time. Yes. There were lots of allegations of racism within the ranks of the Detroit Police Department, the stress units, the tactical mobile units. And Coleman Young was a very bold mayor and made sure that 
the police force did reflect the makeup of the city. And at the front lines at that pivot was a young James Craig getting into that. And now that transition to Los Angeles, you know, they've taken a lot of our good talent from Detroit. You and Barry Gordy would come to mind right away. And so we're happy to have you back. But after your time with with, uh, Los Angeles, you didn't come back to Detroit right away. What were some of the highlights that you witnessed in Los Angeles? And I'm sure you've got dozens of them, but maybe one or two. And then where did you go from there? You know, that's a, a great question. I will tell you that, you know, I had a very uh, good career in Los Angeles. I was exposed to a lot, worked a lot of different assignments. I had the good fortune of moving up. You know, I had a background working in operational assignments, but equally as important, administrative. At one mm-hmm. point, and I think this is notable, at one point while I was a sergeant, I became the president of the African-American Police Association. Because the LAPD was so diverse, there were Asian police associations. There were, in my case, the uh, where I was president, the African-American, which was called the Oscar Joe Bryant Foundation, named after the first African-American officer killed in the line of duty. They had the Hispanic. So you had a, a number of police associated. They weren't unions. They were associations. Mm-hmm. But the reason why I bring it up, uh, I was serving in the role of president during the Rodney King incident in L.A. that later erupted into civil unrest. So notable, uh, and, and I'll go into it in terms of what happened in Detroit last year. When the riots happened in L.A., the thing that stuck with me for the remainder of my policing career was that when the riot started, a lieutenant responded with a team of officers to the epicenter, but then a bad decision was made. That lieutenant directed his officers to retreat to another location, leaving the epicenter to the hands of the mob. You might remember the images coming out of LA where a trucker going through the intersection, Reginald Denny, was dragged from a truck and beaten by local gang members. And It was a sad day, a dark day for the LAPD. In the backdrop of this, Mayor Bradley, first African-American mayor in the city of Los Angeles, and a former LAPD officer who rolls up to the rank of lieutenant, he and the chief then, an iconic chief, Daryl Gates, they weren't talking to each other. Uh, They were at separate events on that fateful day, and the city began to burn. So I never forgot that. And as we talk a little bit more about where I've gone, it will make sense but in the aftermath of the civil unrest, it was then Sergeant Craig and the board from the Oscar Joe Bryant Foundation was summoned for a meeting with a prominent African-American minister in L.A., as we all know, Maxine Walters. Called a meeting, and during that meeting, there was a lot of disrespect shown to my organization, to myself, and the premise was focused on how could you be an African-American working for the LAPD, a racist police department? So it became very contentious. And in my judgment, not very productive. So I abruptly ended the meeting. It was at that point, I began to wonder, here's a person that represents, you know, Democrats in the city of L.A. It didn't feel right. It didn't feel good at all. And so uh, I never forgot that experience, that encounter. And so years later, I continued to promote, I think, another notable assignment that I had a great opportunity as a lieutenant to serve as the adjutant to the chief of police of L.A. And I think it was in that assignment I really learned how to run a large city police department. I sat right outside his door. So the best thing I could be was a sponge. And I was a sponge. (laughs) And I learned a lot during that 18 months until I was then promoted to the rank of captain. And it was there that eventually I would be in charge of one of Los Angeles, 20. At that time, I think we had 21 stations around the city. My station happened to be in South LA. 
It was a very challenging area of the city, but very rewarding. And that experience served me well as I began to fulfill my ultimate goal of becoming a chief of police. I had set a, a goal even long before I was a captain. In fact, there's a notable interview where I guess uh, at one point, Detroit was uh, facing once again more layoffs of police officers. And so the media flew out from Detroit to LA. And at that time, I think it was roughly four of us that were former DPD officers and they wanted to interview us. At the time, I was the highest ranking former officer. I was a sergeant and uh, I took the Detroit newsman out on a ride along and we had a conversation. And as we drove and along Venice Beach, palm trees, beautiful weather, he asked me, he said, do you think you'd ever come back to Detroit? And I told him in a very snarky way, I said, look around here, beautiful weather, palm trees. Hmm. I said, but I would come back on one condition if I came back as a chief of police. And so I guess it was prophetic that I would make that claim. In fact, when uh, I would years later, Cincinnati's police chief and Detroit had reached out and I accepted the job offer to come back as Detroit's police chief. During that announcement, I showed that video clip with me and the newscaster interviewing me about would I ever return to Detroit? And so it's kind of notable. But as I said, I, I pursued my, my ultimate goal to become a chief of police. I ended up, uh, my first chief job was in Portland, Maine. So many thought in Los Angeles, I was losing my mind. How do you leave? Yeah. How do you leave Los Angeles to go to Portland, Maine? Yeah. Now, look, I've been I've been not only in Los Angeles a lot and in Portland, Maine, many times. And indeed, I ended up down in South L.A. I stayed on the bus too long. It was an interesting yeah. ride going through yeah. your area responsibility. But they must have been some good recruiters in Portland, Maine to get you to make that move all the way across the country into a completely different environment. What a culture shock that had to be. Had you ever spent time up there in New England? Had not spent time in New England. The closest I came to New England was I was a finalist for the chief's job in Boston, Massachusetts. And so when the Portland job was posted, I thought long and hard. In fact, I had no interest in Portland, Maine, never visited Portland, Maine. And so Last day that you could apply, I applied. And uh, I applied. It was 80 candidates for that position. So I started thinking, something must be great about Portland, Maine. They have 80 people that have applied as chief. As things would happen, I got selected. I, I understood why so many people were interested in Portland, Maine. It's, it's a beautiful northeastern town. And, and the state of Maine is a beautiful state. Sure is. It was a very different community I've ever worked. I was used to working in very diverse communities, given that I worked in L.A. But Maine was predominantly Caucasian, and I was probably representative of maybe 0.25 African-American. And I only bring that up because it, it really, for me, was something very different. But then that experience is very rewarding as well. One of the challenges I was faced with uh, in Portland, Maine, and so there's always a reason why our paths sometimes go in directions we don't know why. But what most folks didn't know that Portland, Maine had the third largest African immigrant population, mm -hmm. Somali and Sudanese, yes. who came to Portland, uh, but was so interesting, very poor relationship at that time with local government, no relationship with the police department. And I felt, you know, that because of that poor relationship, the city was ripe for trouble, possibly even civil unrest. Although when I shared that story with the mayor and the city manager, they said, well, let me just say this. 
It's not Detroit and it's certainly not Los Angeles. So it's no such thing as civil unrest in Portland, Maine. But needless to say, I went about the work that I, and using the skills that I acquired along the way, we built some great relationships with that community. I left there knowing that things were in a better place. And so then another opportunity came. It was Cincinnati, Ohio. And I thought, wow, Cincinnati, considered a major city, very different city, racially divided. They never had an outside chief, never had an African-American chief. So I got selected. And uh, what a wonderful experience that was for me. I served there two years like I served two years in, in, in Portland. But I thought while I was there, just think, I'm 234 miles from Detroit, And I got to believe one day I'm going to make it home. And as uh, luck would have it, I was able to come home full circle at a time when Detroit was facing bankruptcy, did go through bankruptcy, and the city was placed under emergency management. Well, there's always been a close relationship between Southern Ohio, of course, Cincinnati, right across the Ohio River from Kentucky. I know in my youth growing up in the blue collar areas, many families came up from Kentucky and Tennessee, of course, elsewhere in the South. We had... Sheriff Jerry Clayton on during season one, and and, uh, he's from Alabama, came to Detroit. Father was relocated, played football at Eastern Michigan University, had a terrific career, doing a great job for all the citizens in Washtenaw. So you come home to Detroit, and, you know, before the bankruptcy, the the police cars looked like they were in serious need of repair. Streetlights couldn't get turned on. What did you discover about the Detroit Police Department when you arrived? Well, it was in shambles. Uh, And this is certainly not a reflection on the men and women. I'm talking about the police officers that served. Leadership um, was a revolving door. Chiefs came in. They came in. They left. There was no stability at the level of leadership. The morale was at the very bottom. You talked about some of the issues, the cars, widely reported that uh, response times to emergency calls for service were at times upwards one hour, if they even showed. Homicide clearance rate was at an, an embarrassing low, 11%. Oh, my. Police officers were forced into 12-hour shifts that they didn't work. 10% of their pay was taken away from them. So I came into a broken department, but also came into a broken city who had lost confidence in the police department. The beauty of coming in under emergency management at that time, I didn't report to a mayor. I didn't report to the city council or a police commission. I reported to the emergency manager. And the only directive he gave me was, you're the police professional. Just go ahead and do what you do. And I did. So I knew I had to first focus on really raising the morale of the police officers a part of my leadership acumen is that I believe much in listening to those who are closest to doing the work. I remember just as I was uh, a couple of days before my appointment, I met with a large group of police officers and I asked them, I said, what would you like me to do? And two things. They said, fire everybody who are appointed at the rank of inspector, but fire them all. They're, they're useless. Oh, wow. And secondly, we want to be cops again. Two things. What does that mean? They want to be cops again. What what does that mean? Well, they felt that they were handcuffed. They felt not supported. As you may know, the city was under a 13-year federal oversight, a consent judgment. They just couldn't get out from under that. They just felt like they couldn't go out and serve the community and make the community safe. Again, leadership or lack thereof was a key factor. If my recollection is, is true... There was a a gap uh, between the community organizations, some faith-based, some community-based, 
and the police department. And that chasm seems to have been bridged now. Am I getting that right? Or were there lessons in there? You're absolutely right. I touched on it briefly. But when I talk about the morale of the community, they had no confidence or trust in the police department. And so one of the things as I was rebuilding confidence and building a trust-based relationship with the men and women who did the work. And oh, by the way, I did fulfill their requests. Everybody at the rank of inspector was removed with the exception of one. Some opted to retire and some opted to go back to their last civil service rank, which was rank of lieutenant. So that was a great start in really building trust. But in the community, essentially, I had to do the same thing. I had to go in and meet with folks that didn't have much confidence in the department. Certainly, I met with activists who didn't like the police, didn't want to work with the police. And so that was a process in and of itself. Uh, But I can tell you that we built those bridges. We delivered on promises. The police wanted to be police officers again, but the community wanted police officers to do their job. It was a win-win situation. And so things change. You may remember probably one of the first things I did to communicate to Detroit and Metro Detroit that the police were back. We raided a, a location on the east side of Detroit called the Colony Arms. It was a hotbed for criminal activity that ironically was positioned probably within a half a mile of the mayor's residence. I want to take note now and say that Mayor Bing was the mayor at the time, but nothing was being done about the shootings, drug dealing, prostitution, you name it. Everything happened in this one apartment building. So I assembled 200 police officers or or more. Uh, Some of them were from the Michigan State Police, Wayne County Sheriff's, and in mass, We hit that building. We made plenty of arrests and we had cameras in tow. Uh, And by the way, that's where I got the nickname Hollywood. (laughs) But but, but the idea was to bring cameras so that the community could see that the police were back. I think it was in our first season. There was a great video that we posted at richardhelpy.com. It was you and Mayor Duggan and three or four community activists. And you were meeting them where they live. It was a terrific, I thought, outreach of building trust with those in the community. And and I just was taken by the kind of customer service orientation. It wasn't an us versus them. It was, okay, what are we going to do to live here? And from external observations, it looks like you and Mayor Duggan both forged a great working relationship. What can you tell us about those activist groups and about your relationship with Mayor Duggan? Well, as I indicated, many of the activist groups didn't even have a relationship with the police department. And I believe that it's okay to have differences of opinion. That's fine. What's critically important that when you talk about solutions, you got to sit down at the table and talk. And that doesn't mean you're going to always agree, but the fact that you would sit down and together in a collaborative way, come up with solutions that benefit all. And so we did that. And again, we didn't always agree. I mean, Mayor Duggan and I didn't always agree, but Mayor Duggan and I were seamless when you talk about you know, embracing the community, uh, certainly as the mayor of the city and focusing on neighborhoods and the issues that people were most concerned, quality of life issues. At the same time, I launched neighborhood police officers or MPOs as they're affectionately referred to. And basically, it was dividing the city up into small geographic areas and assigning a neighborhood police officer to that footprint. And their focus was get to know the neighbors, the businesses, clergy, address quality of life issues. And I got to tell you, 
The community loved it. They still love it because that was one of the hallmarks of our administration, as well as Greenlight Detroit, which was another hallmark of uh, what we did over the eight years that I served as chief here in Detroit. And for those of you who haven't visited Detroit, it's it is a remarkable comeback. The city's beauty is being restored. The leadership of people like Dan Gilbert and Roger Penske and others from the business community. Mike Duggan's a get it done kind of guy who wades in. And then the the issue keeping people away from the city or you know one of the probably top two was public safety. And this is where Chief Craig came in. And life didn't get any easier because We had the COVID and then the George Floyd killing and the subsequent civil disobedience all at once. And I don't know which one we should take first. Well, let's take the demonstration civil unrest that rocked places like Portland, Oregon and Seattle and Chicago, even Grand Rapids, Michigan, Minneapolis, police stations being overrun. And we had a different experience in Detroit. We did. And how did that happen? Well, a number a number of factors. First of all, I talked about my experience in L.A. when there was the retreat from that location by the LAPD. And I said how much that meant to me personally. I know what impact it had on the men and women of the LAPD. And I never forgot. So I watched with intensity the unrest that was unfolding in a lot of major cities last year. But I knew one thing not Detroit. And so one way to get it done was to show strong leadership and a resolve that we won't retreat. We're not going to let these outside agitators come into our city and take it over. You also heard me talk a little bit about how we built relationships with the activist community. Yes. Members of that community stood with us, stood by us, and did not want these outsiders to come into our city and incite violence. They didn't want it. So they were highly visible. They engaged some of these individuals and let them know, not here, not in our home. So it was the leadership on our side. It was the relationships that we had established over then seven years that really paid dividends. And so when I looked at some of these other cities where mayors were trying to negotiate with individuals that you could not negotiate with to the tune of seeing police officers forced out of their police stations, autonomous zones being set up, like in Seattle. These outsiders tried all of that here in Detroit. They tried to take over police stations. They tried to set up autonomous zones. The worst that did happen, maybe over, we must have been, protests were over 100 days. There were seven of those days where our officers were attacked with projectiles in an effort to agitate and promote violence. And we overwhelmed them. Again, we didn't retreat. We didn't back down. This was about keeping our city safe. And the message was clear. I would caption that as a trust dividend, building up that relationship with the community that you serve and saying, how are we going to unite? And that trust dividend paid off. And I can tell you, it was a beautiful thing because you and I share, you know, well, basically the same chronology. And we witnessed a lot at 11, 12 years old. And we we paid the price for a long time of our city being the butt of the joke at times. And what an extraordinary thing that you were able to do. And of course, that strong support from the mayor. And I know some of your contemporaries and police chiefs didn't enjoy that. They weren't allowed to do their jobs. Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best was ordered by her mayor to surrender a precinct, a thing that she did not want to do. I got to tell you, shameful. And I'm not not taking a swipe at Carmen. I know Carmen. We served on the same organization, Major City Chiefs. 
So I know her, I respect her. But my orientation is such that if we had had a Seattle-like experience unfolding here in Detroit and the mayor said, well, you know, let him take over a police station. I said, not me. I would have refused. I might have lost my job, but I would have been willing to lose my job because I'm not fulfilling my obligation, my oath to protect and serve. It's that important to me. So the mayor and I have enjoyed a good relationship. And so, again, we didn't always agree on everything. And and that's not unusual. However, he had enough confidence in that I was going to do my job. Are we using our jail systems and our prison systems and our court systems and our mental health systems in the right way? Or are there things that we need to change about that whole arc of how we build a great city and a great state? Well, you know, and and these issues are not uncommon to many other places across America. Uh, Do I feel there's room for improvement? Absolutely. Uh, I've been very vocal, not just here in Detroit, but over my time, especially police chiefing over the issue of the broken mental health, it's broken and, and it does need to get fixed. It's not just broken here. Is it a public safety issue? Absolutely. And I'm passionate about it. My best friend, who we served together in the LAPD and was a member of the LAPD SWAT unit, was killed by a mentally ill person mm. who had just killed three of his family members. And so... Uh, I have a a deep resolve, a passion for trying to understand how best to fix the system. Now, we don't best fix the system and engage in the anti-police rhetoric, uh, defund the police or dismantle the police. And so I think that we can still fund the police. And that's something that most Detroiters want. They've never embraced by and large, a defund the police movement. But they also support working in a way that creates a safe city, whether it's with police, whether it's with social workers, to find a way to better address individuals who are suffering from mental illness. It is a public safety issue, but you don't do it by moving funds from a police department. You do it because it's a priority. And so this movement uh, does not represent what most people want. I've done my own background around this, and, and this may be oversimplifying it, but the message is defund the police, but not in my neighborhood. And and you're leaving people very vulnerable that need the service. And, I, and look, I think everybody knows what good policing is and that there's discipline for officers. And it's an incredibly difficult job to be an officer. But I think people want to see, you know, a good police force, good mental health services and a, and a good court system. You know, when you think about the policing and you look across, well, just you know, regionally or just even within our state, we've got lots of municipalities that have police forces. We have, you know, many county sheriff departments. We have the state police, various federal agencies. How much have you traveled around the state? And what do you see the connection points between your experience in Detroit and perhaps with those out state or, you know, suburbia, you know, up north, out western Michigan, the UP, and, and what might be some of the differences if you've had a chance to observe any of those things? Well, that's a lot to chew on. But as a chief of the largest city in the state of Michigan, certainly all eyes was on this police department. Mm-hmm. So much so what I've learned uh, as I transitioned to Detroit that many of our partnering agencies had lost confidence in this police department. Right after my retirement, Uh, I had a chance to share with chiefs from all across Michigan. Uh, They had their annual meeting, conference, 
And it was during that meeting that we talked about a number of issues. Uh, they wanted to understand the Detroit story, why Detroit didn't burn, whereas cities and other places around the country did burn, but also some cities in our state uh, had looting and damage to property and fires. Uh, Grand Rapids uh, comes to mind. Lansing had some issues, Kalamazoo, to name a few. And so I had a, a chance to share the story and they were deeply appreciative. One of the things that I've always done and, and clearly working collaboratively, not just with our federal law enforcement partners, but our state, or the Michigan State Police, certainly municipalities close to the city of Detroit. We've worked very effectively in partnerships. But what cannot, what should not happen is you just can't paint the entire profession with a broad brush. Mm -hmm. And some of the reckless comments that are made certainly don't pass muster. For example, Detroit was under a consent judgment for 13 years. And so we adopted policing best practices. There's some departments that operate very differently, that probably could do things differently. But you just can't paint a police department with a broad brush because different municipalities have different concerns, different issues. And so we're public servants. We work for the people we serve. And there has to be a relationship with the community that you serve. What do they want in a police department? And that, of course, would apply universally. One thing that's universal also has been the pandemic and COVID-19. My understanding that you had a case of COVID-19 early on, and also that you had officers and support personnel affected. What was that like, and how did you manage through that? Well, once again, we'll go back to leadership, whether it's leading the potential for civil unrest, leading by setting the appropriate tone, leading from the front. It was no different with COVID. None of us knew what to expect. And so at one point during the height, I had 650 members of the Detroit Police Department quarantined. Whoa. Quarantine. Not all had COVID at that point, but 650 quarantine. And at that during that time, I also was I had COVID. And so I had to continue to lead this organization. Fortunately, while I was ill, I still had to make some real time decisions. Because when you talk about 650 members of the department being out of work, what impact does that have on serving the community? I gladly say that the Detroit Police Department never shut down like other governmental entities did during the pandemic, not the Detroit Police Department. Now, what we did do, we collapsed some of our support units and those units that were collapsed, we moved them into the patrol operational environment because the most important thing a police department does is respond to emergency calls for service. And I'm happy to say that when we had a number of officers out and civilian support staff out, no hiccups. We continue to respond to those emergency calls for service and manage our way through a very difficult time. And keep in mind, this was also during the time where we were having nightly protests. The pandemic was still very live and a whale. And so that's called leadership. Indeed. And I understand that your preparation, you have a very vigorous physical fitness program, and that I think you credit that for helping you fight off the COVID, I mean, so in a pre-vaccine world, you were stricken with this bug. Absolutely. Uh, throughout the bug, as, as weak as I became at times, I continued to push myself. And it was through, you know, a regular cardio routine that I think dramatically helped me not only survive, but that I didn't end up in the hospital. I saw an interview with your daughter 
who was still saying you were working out and she's trying to get you to slow down. I, I have daughters like that too. And it, you know, right. it's nice to have them, but I don't think they could slow us down. Right. The Detroit Police Department's a large public entity and you've got legal requirements and budgetary requirements. And so you're very comfortable in the role of both administrator and leader. And there's a lot that you probably take for granted, but just for scale, like what would be an annual budget and the number of personnel that you were responsible for? Well, 315 million, give or take a few. Our staff right now, when I retire, roughly, we're talking about civilian and sworn members, 2,800. So Detroit's still considered a large police department. But I remember time, even when I was on, when the city had a population of about 1.6 million residents. At one point, our department was 6,500. So mm-hmm. we were probably either the fourth or the fifth largest police department in the country at that time. Of course, coming from Los Angeles, where we had close to 10,000, I think they might have about 10,000 or close to 11,000 officers now, but you're talking about a city of 4 million. And then Chicago, that's a much smaller city than Los Angeles, has 13,000 or did with recent events. Uh, police officers are leaving at an alarming rate because of this lack of support. Chief, you've talked a lot about leadership today, and it's an area that I'm very passionate about. And you know, my personal belief is that leadership is about consistency. It's about setting an example, uh, not expecting something from your people that you wouldn't personally do. And I, I think that there was a time in our country when somebody would be an ach- would achieve in an area. They would be an academic or a, perhaps a military person or a business person. They'd accomplish something and the populace would vote them, say, we want you to be our leader over our government. And now it seems that when I look at some of the people that are in elected office, I I ask myself, what kind of job did they do before they got here? And what possible job could they do when they leave office? I think that might explain some of the dearth of leadership that we have. Talk to me just a little bit in general about your leadership philosophy. And if you can, What would make James Craig, who's been a public servant for your entire career, different from some of the people that we see in leadership? You don't need to name any names, but your leadership philosophy and what would make someone with your credentials different than other people that are perhaps failing in leadership positions? 44 years in public service as a police officer, rising through the ranks, understanding what crisis leadership looks like. Let's face it, in policing, I know over the years, I can look at times where I've dealt with crisis after crisis. Leaders have to be decisive. Leaders have to be bold and courageous at times. Leaders have to understand and embrace those who do the work, not just talk about it, but it's your actions, what you do every day. I coined a phrase in the Detroit Police Department, and it said simply this, cops count, leadership matters. Cops count, leadership matters. At 2 o'clock in the morning, if you dial 911, you live in the city of Detroit, the chief of police is not going to come to your home. It's going to be a police officer. And by and large, if that police officer is feels supported, feels valued, they're going to treat you a certain kind of way because they know they represent the person who leads the organization. Now, does that mean that like in any profession, any industry, we're going to have bad apples? Absolutely. But leadership requires that you're transparent, 
not just talk transparency, but someone who owns the bad and the good, takes responsibility for the bad, doesn't try to put a shade over it. And one of the things that Detroiters have come to know that I didn't shade the truth. Uh, I got no real joy out of reporting out that I made a decision to raid my narcotics unit. And I was very public about it because there had been historic corruption. And it didn't mean that every officer who worked in narcotics was corrupt, but it was a big enough problem that we had to do something very different, something that had never been done before. And we did that, but we did it in a very public way. That's what defines leaders. And when you talk about trust, you instill trust, build trust by setting the appropriate tone. You do what you say, and you hold people accountable. And that's why at the beginning of this conversation, I talked about the necessity for me to take a strong look at those who were in, I don't know if I should call them leadership positions, but in managerial positions in the department who frankly were failing and they needed to go. It's taking that bold action decisively and what you will find, people will rally behind you. And that's a long way of saying, uh, this is not something I read in books. This is something that I've demonstrated each and every day. And so when I left the Detroit Police Department, retired, I leave with my head up and know that the department's in a better place than it was when I got here eight years prior. Chief Craig, this has been a fantastic conversation. You've been very generous with your time. Thank you. Is there anything that we didn't talk about today that we perhaps should spend a little time on? Well, I think it's important to note, and you kind of touched on it. I didn't dig into it. And when we talk about the issues of violence going and sweeping around our country, sadly, you know, we don't talk enough about what else is broken. We don't have conversations about the victims of the people who live in vulnerable communities. And we ignore the obvious failures, whether it's a police department, prosecutor's office, or the courts. They all play a critical role in keeping our communities safe, but they're public servants. As a chief of police, I'm accountable. As a governor of the state of Michigan for what works and does not work, I'm accountable, I'm responsible, and we should never forget we work for the people. This is not a team of I. We work for the people and we serve the people. And so I'll close on that note, but I just want to thank you for giving me an opportunity to spend some time with you this afternoon. Chief Craig, this has been my honor and my privilege to spend this time with you. And we need more people like you in public service. The reason we started the Common Bridge was that we're not getting very good behavior from those from one party or the other. We're not getting honest reporting. People think this legacy of a country is a birthright. It's not. And we do need our elected officials, other people in public service to rise and achieve just the way the rank and file want to serve. We need more honest reporting, which has been sadly lacking. And I'll tell you with now well over a million engagements, not one single person has ever come to me and said, I don't know why you're doing this show. Everything's great. In fact, I'm getting just the opposite that said, look, if you can give voice to people that are out there doing real work on behalf of our communities, on behalf of our states, on behalf of our nation, and and on behalf of this great world, that's something that we're not getting elsewhere. And basically saying we kind of expect the reporting to be slanted. And it's talking to someone like you that really gives me confidence that there can be a better day ahead with the proviso that we all demand it. So Chief, again, thank you so much for being on with me today. Any closing note that you'd like to offer before I sign us off? 
No, just uh, enjoy the conversation. Look forward to uh, future discussions. Uh, as I do, and best wishes to you in all your future endeavors. This is Rich Helpy with our extraordinary guest today, former Detroit, Michigan Police Chief James Craig, talking about policing, about municipalities, and about leadership and other topics. This is Rich Helpy on the Common Bridge, available at most podcast outlets on YouTube TV, and of course, register free at richardhelpy.com. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.